You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, um, thank you for uh, for Rally Day, for the for the message um, uh, that that you 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 take sinners into your club, into the kingdom of God. Um, let that word now continue uh, to speak to us as we uh, we think about the heart. We think about getting to the heart. We think about your word given through your your uh, your apostle Luke, um, and uh, open us to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so it will be a nice segue, I think. Uh, the the word of the the skit or the sermon drama. Um, the kingdom of God is for sinners. The kingdom of God is for the for the weak, for the needy, for the powerless, for those that can't get it together, those that are obnoxious, um, those that are. Uh, uh, you can cross me. It doesn't bother me at all. If you want to come sit over here. Um, uh, so short series, six weeks. I'm going to start kind of getting to the heart. Uh, going to be in the middle of the Gospel of Luke. By no means, sort of pulling apart. I forgot to get Bibles. I'll have some next week, so you can can uh, can follow along if you like. But we'll we'll go through Luke, and this, um, I don't know how much we'll use audio visual. Um, I thought of a painting. Um, in fact, let's go ahead and put it up so you can have something to look at when you start to get tired of listening to me. That just means the city church in Wittenberg. Um, anybody go on the Germany trip a couple of years ago with me? We saw this. Um, uh, uh, it's the, called the, the, the Wittenberg or the Wittenberg altarpiece in the city church of, of Wittenberg. Wittenberg is obviously, it's not obvious, it's the city where Luther and the, the Reformation started, um, where Luther lived. Uh, uh, he was called there. He wasn't born there, but he was called there early, um, 1502, I think it was. A, uh, the University of Wittenberg was just founded, and he came in 1511, 1512, something like that. Is the we'd call him now what Mark Genelette does. We'd call him professor of Old Testament. Then he was just lecturer in biblical theology. Um, uh, and this is there are two churches. There's the, the castle church. It's kind of the imperial church. Um, that's the one where he nailed the 95 theses on that door. Uh, that's the one that was almost never used. It wasn't used as often. It was there. It was the, the emperor's church when he was he was around in the castle. And then there's this one, the city church, uh, which was the one where where everybody was uh, uh, would go, where his children would have been baptized by a good friend of his named Johannes Bugenhagen. And so they just did church, just like what we do. This is where funerals were. This is where his funeral was. And this is where Luther preached 3,000 times, about 100 times a year over 33 years. Um, he wasn't the only preacher, but he was one of them. And so that's just the, this is called a triptych. Um, you know, the word triple and triptych, and a triptych is just a piece of art that's in a church over an altar or a table. And so you can see this. I don't know why I'm telling you all this, but it's kind of fun. This is the table. This is actually the, the front of the church because all the way back, and this is kind of just the side. And here's, you know, one of the side altars or a table. And this part would be called the triptych, where this is then sort of the two, maybe three sacraments, as Luther would describe them, the sacrament of baptism, the Lord's Supper, and then the, what he called the power of the keys, or the, the, uh, the pronouncement of absolution, which means freedom, just absolving 
the uh, the penitent sinner of of sins. We'll look at that later. That's not even why we're doing this. And then this is just called the predella, um, which is just the bottom of the triptych. And that's what we're really going to sort of have in the back. It's very well known. Um, it's usually called uh, properly, I suppose, it's called the uh, uh, the predella of the uh, of the Schottkirche uh, altarpiece. But Luther preaching Christ crucified is what it's often known as. That's Luther. These are people, and there's Christ crucified. Have that in your minds. This comes out of 2 Corinthians 2, 3, I think it is, when Paul is writing to uh, the Corinthians, and he says, I had nothing uh, to say to you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. Um, And that's kind of what I want to get at. That's kind of getting to the heart of where the series is. What does that mean when Paul would say something like that, that I have nothing to say to you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. If that's, uh, uh, if we might say that's getting to the heart of the matter. Um, it's getting down to the brass tacks. That's that's the important thing. Uh, what does that mean? It's not the only thing. We're um, going to say that's the important thing. That's getting to the heart, and then from the heart, everything else kind of grows. If we're going to come down to the bottom of it, what does it mean to to know nothing except Christ Jesus and Him crucified? What does it mean to preach only Christ Jesus and Him crucified? What Luther is doing. We'll look at the painting in a little bit. Um, To get there today, we're going to be in Luke 9. I don't know if you all have a Bible on your phone. I'm sorry I didn't get those. I'll I'll have those next time. Um, But staying with Luther, um, I'll try not to, but he's always in the back of He's really in the front of my mind. People that know me know that he's just kind of my, my, my prism. I look through through the world lens, in a lot of ways through Luther's writings. Um, uh, he had a way of describing God. He didn't repeat this a lot, but early on in 1518, really his first true Reformation writing, um, uh, the, the Heidelberg Disputation, he described the works of God's left hand and right hand, which he would also, well, I don't need to go on that. So, so what does that mean? God's left-handed power and God's right-handed power. Um, uh, with uh, uh, the indulgence of those of you who are left-handed. Um, uh, that's going to be the preferred work in Luther's mind of God. He has this idea of right-handed power um, being the power that you'd expect, um, the power that's associated with how we normally associate power, power that's obvious, that's sensible, that's understandable, that's predictable, that is related to position or authority, power that is related to, uh, that comes right at you and you see it and you say, oh my gosh, you know, that is overwhelming. That is a force that is going to overpower me. It's manifest, it's not hidden, it's very visible, it's evident immediately. And then, of course, there's the opposite. There's left-handed power. Um, if, if right-handed power is all of those things, left-handed power is all of its opposite. Left-handed power, the works of God's left hand. That's what he described it. And he's going to say that the crucifixion, Christ Jesus and him crucified, is the work of God's left hand. Um, so left-handed power would be the example, uh, or the, the examples would be power that is not obvious. Um, that is imperceptible, that doesn't seem strong, but actually shows itself up as weak, that's not active and, and lively, but it's very passive. It happens to you. You're overwhelmed, you're assaulted, you seem to have no, 
no choice in the matter. And so you're passive. It's, it's, uh, you suffer it. Um, the word suffer and passive are related. Uh, so we call it the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ or the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can hear the word passive and the word suffering and the word reception where, we, where, uh, where, where Christ in his passion suffered and he received. He wasn't active. And so all these ways of looking at the left-handed power of God, the imperceptible, weak, uh, hidden work of God, um, that's Christ Jesus and him crucified. Um, so let's get into it this way. What is the activity of God? Um, what are the sorts of things that God does when he exercises his activity? In no particular order, but I came up with just thinking about what well, God saves, he raises, he delivers, he redeems, and he rejoices. And then we can just think about it. We can just slow down and think, well, surely we all would agree that God saves and delivers and redeems and, uh, and raises and rejoices. But how does he do this? Does he do this with the work of his right hand? Or does he do it with the work of his left? Does he do it, obviously, with power that overwhelms you, that comes at you and you recognize, oh my gosh, there it is? Or is it the work of the left hand that where God is, uh, he seems absolutely absent. He seems like he's absolutely nowhere to be found. He seems like he's absolutely weak and powerless where God comes in in the left hand to do this work of raising and redeeming and saving and delivering and rejoicing. Because you have to ask, or I do anyway. I'll tell you what to do, but um, who does he save? It's a simple question, right? You start thinking about the verbs and then the object of the verbs, the object of his activity. Who does God save? Well, he saves sinners and losers. You don't save somebody that's well. You don't save somebody that's righteous or a winner. And who does he raise? Well, you don't raise someone who's alive. You raise a dead person. You raise someone who has no power. No agency, no potence, no ability. Uh, who does he deliver? He delivers only the lost, the inept, and the impotent, the powerless. Um, I know it's simple. I've repeated a lot. Um, I don't know why I didn't see this several years ago. Maybe probably Amazon. Um, you know, there's swoop and the arrow and all that stuff. It's sort of point A to point B, and you know, Amazon delivers and all that. And you think well, that's actually a great. I mean, that's a simple illustration of what it means when you say, you know, my deliverer is coming. Christ Jesus is my deliverer. It's I'm a package and I'm sitting here. How is a package going to get over there? Somebody has to take it. You have to have somebody that moves it. The package has no ability to deliver itself. And so when you talk about who does God delivers, he can only, by definition, deliver someone that has no power in and of themselves to help themselves, as one of Cramner's colleagues say. And then who does he redeem? Redeem is a very specific word. We still get it when we talk about redeeming coupons. That's the most common word we used to describe it. He said the word is connected in a lot of ways to the slave trade, where someone would be redeemed from slavery. They'd be bought or purchased. Um, uh, and who does God redeem? Well, he only redeems those who are in bondage, who are enslaved, who are imprisoned, because um, that's the only thing you redeem. You don't redeem someone that's free. Um, and then over whom does he rejoice? He doesn't rejoice over the 99. He doesn't say, you know, 
just so proud of y'all. Y'all are all in the pen, just like you are, and you're supposed to be here. I'm just so happy for y'all, and I rejoice that you did all the right things and made my life easy. That's just not the Lord's language. He rejoices over what? He rejoices over the one sheep that was lost but is now found. And we'll look at all that in Luke when it comes around. So, uh, what does it mean when we get to the heart? Um, in a strange way, um, uh, I just picked up and saw Jason, my good friend, and I love to do this. Uh, you know, the, the stay with Luther. Uh, out of what was the Reformation? What was one of the things it was doing? Uh, uh, there was a strong sentiment in the church, which is still there in Nike's slogan, just do it. Um, the Latin was facare quad in se est, which just means just do what is in you, in football terminology, because we're right in there. It just means like fall forward just two inches, and the Lord will rush 99 and you know, 7 eight yards to come and get you, to make sure that you don't you know, fall back and get a set or whatever, you know, however you want to strain, strain that, that metaphor. Um, but as long as you do what you can and fall forward, just don't fall backwards. Just take something, even if it's just an inclination, but you can't step. Just have some part of you that's in you that moves towards God, and he'll meet you right there. That seems very, what, sensible, <laughs> reasonable, natural, understandable, predictable. It sounds like the right hand at power, doesn't it? And that's not God. I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The work of God's left hand. And Luther, and now I think the scripture, because all Luther was doing was forming the church again, reform, reformation, forming the church again around the living word of God, which does not say, fall forward and I'll do the rest. It says, I got it. Because you're, you're, you're impotent. You're a package that has no ability to move itself. I'm your deliverer. You're a dead man. You're a dead woman. And I'm the one who raises. You're imprisoned. And I'm the one that purchases you. I will redeem you. Um, you're the one who is lost. And I am your Savior. I, I, I am your Lord and your God. So, do what is in you. The funny thing is, and I came up with this this week, or I was just thinking about it and come up with it, because um, uh, I've... I don't know how long, you know, picked apart that old, you know, 13, 14, 15th century phrase, just do what is in you. And I thought, oh, that's so bad. And I was like, it's actually right. Just do what is in you. What commends us to God? Our sin. <laughs> what is in you? Sin. For it is what comes out of the heart is envy and malice and, and, uh, and murder and, and, uh, and jealousy and fits of rage and things such as these. There's about six of those lists in the New Testament and just do what is in you. Yep, all that, all of that. And he's right there as your Redeemer, your Savior, your Deliverer uh, and rejoicing over you and says, my, 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 my son, my daughter, with you I am well pleased. So that's the setup. That's kind of all the background to, um, to, uh, to what we're going to be doing the next six weeks, five and a half weeks now. Um, any thoughts there? And then we'll go to the scripture and we'll look at where we're just almost just going like that. Let's we'll just start in Luke 9. Um, it's kind of a turning point, um, but we'll start in Luke 9. But any comments there? Um, that's repetition, I know, for a lot of us. Um, for others, maybe not. But um, it's good just to kind of center up to that. It's like, that's right. That's right. Um, so in Luke 9, um, let me turn. Uh, 
Sorry, I should have had this marked. Um, um, thinking about this, uh, where uh, we're going to pick it up at Luke 9:43, where Jesus foretells his death, why he has to do this, put himself on a cross, and uh, and die. But before that, in Luke 9, there's these other aspects uh, that just put a little context on it. He, uh, he sends out the 12. He gives them power. He's got right-handed power, and they're a little bit enamored with it. It's like, whoa, wait. We, we say, demon, get out. And the demon listens, and it leaves, and they're sort of drunk on that. And then Herod gets perplexed, and Herod, the, uh, the ruler, uh, the Roman ruler who's standing instead, he's just he's really curious. He's like, who is this guy? You know, It's the great question in the New Testament. Who is this man? Um, and Herod's right there. Um, he's a little bit of an ambivalent figure. It's like I, I, he doesn't seem like a charlatan. He's not quite like everybody else. The left-handedness of, uh, of, of God seems to be intriguing at the least to Herod. Uh, and then Jesus comes, and the only uh, miracle which occurs in all four Gospels, he feeds the 5,000. Definitely a right-handed work. Jesus, they're hungry. What does he do? He takes his right hand and he says, you know, loaves and fish and, you know, just what you'd expect. All you're hungry, here's food, like food for your stomach. And it'll pass through and tomorrow morning you're going to be hungry again. But here you go, you know, food for everybody. Um, Right-handed work. Uh, And then that's kind of what everybody expected. So Peter, great Peter, he confesses, you know, who do you say that I am, Peter? And he says, you're the Christ. Um, Luke, like Matthew and Mark, uh, doesn't add the other qualifier where he says, you know, uh, get behind me, Satan. He just says, you're the Christ. Still the Christ of right-handed work, probably. Look, he just made, you know, thousands of pieces of bread and more than enough, seven, twelve basketfuls, I forget what it is, of fish left over. Uh, you know, his right hand can can do everything that's needed, defeat the uh, the unjust rulers feed the hungry educate the uh, uh, the the ignorant um, set the wrong things right the right hand of God is among us this must be the Messiah the chosen one of God who will come and then Jesus starts to sort of use his left hand and put it in there he foretells his death the first time and he says he's strictly charged and commanded him to tell no one all this that he's the Christ uh, and it says the first time the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and then on the third day be raised. And he said, what? <laughs> Wait a minute. That's not right-handed work, Jesus. What are you talking about? You're wrong. That can't be what it is. And then Jesus says, no, this is it. And he goes through and, and it's Luke that says, if you want to follow me, you take up your own cross. And everybody knew what that was. Um, you know, a method of death that took three to... Eight days, usually, I think it was. Um, I mean, a long time. There were some people that stayed up there over a week. What a way to die. Everybody knew what it meant to say. Um, it wasn't a, a trite phrase to take up your cross. Um, ugh, can't do that. Um, if you want to follow me, uh, that's the way. A left-handed work which starts to pull people down. And so it sets it all up. And then he goes up to um, the transfiguration. Again, a right-handed work of God where for the only time he actually sort of reveals himself, even in the uh, the most full way, where, say, in Exodus, where we saw the posterior of God, he says, you can see my front. And he went up with James and John and Peter, and on his right hand was Moses, and on his left was 
was Elijah, and he was, you know, dazzling white, you know, than anybody could see. The right-handed manifestation of the majesty of God. You'd look, whoa, power. You would have no mistaking. And Peter, again, he, he, he gets it right about half the time. The other half, he gets it wrong. He says, it's good that we're here. <laughs> Let's stay here. If I'm near that kind of power, as long as it doesn't kill me, I'm okay. And even if it does kill me, you know, what am I going to do? That's God, and I'm not. Everything is clear. But he comes down, just like he does every single time. When Jesus goes up and does something really sort of miraculous or wonderful, you know, up on a mountain, we usually think of that. He comes down, and he gets into the muck, into the mire, into the sin of the world, and he starts doing left-handed stuff, and he drives out somebody with a demon. Um, and then we pick it up in Luke 9, 43. Um, Somebody just read. Let me read from 943 to the end, and we'll do some text work, and then we'll talk about this painting, and then we'll be done. Um, uh, Jesus again foretells his death. Verse 43, And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. i got to say, I love that phrase. Never saw it before. And Jesus goes, let these words sink into your ears. Um, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, as he was, it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So let's take it in pieces. So here's that left hand, right hand. This is kind of what set me on this course as I was thinking about this. They were astonished at the majesty of God. The majesty of God is God revealed. God in his absolute self. Remember absolution? Um, we saw that earlier. Uh, let's go ahead and tie everything together. Remember over here on the, the far right panel, it's the absolution. You know that word absolute, where when a priest absolves a penitent, uh, penitent sinner, um, he frees them from their sin. You absolve. The word there literally means to free, um, to loose. Um, that's why it's called the office of the keys. You can unlock uh, a sinner from their bondage and to sin. Uh, well, God in his absolute self is God being God. God being the only sort of free thing, period. That God is free in himself to do whatever he wants, to be whatever he wants, to, uh, to be all places at all times, to know all things. We call that the, 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 the God of the absolute, or God the absolute God. God is free. God is majestic. You also get that word when you talk about the, um, the majesty of God. They were all astonished at the majesty of God, the absoluteness of God, the freedom of God. Right hand. But while they were all marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, and so now it's the spoken word, how vulnerable how vulnerable is the spoken word. Uh, and Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them. The right hand of God is where the, work, the works of God's right hand are obvious and apparent and understandable and reasonable and perceptible and manifest. You look at it and you say, oh, that's it. You know, it's the thunder and lightning and there's no mistake. And the left hand of God is hidden and imperceptible and weak. And in fact, it often looks like death. It seems like absence. You're like, God is not there. He could not be a part of that. And yet, there it is. 
let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man, he juxtaposes the Son of Man, is this great Messianic saying from the Old Testament, has to be delivered, remember that word, passive, into the hands of men. How weak and how vulnerable. God incarnate delivered the potency of God, the majesty and the freedom of God, limiting himself so that he has no, he has impotence to be able to move. And so he delivers he has delivered passive tense into the hands of men. Um, and of course, of course, they didn't understand this saying, and it was concealed from them. For us, it's, it's, we're at least familiar with this idea that God came into the world as a form of a man to you know, uh, consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but humbled himself and became obedient even to death, death on a cross. All the Philippians, too, are just the story of Good Friday, but... Gosh, it's scandalous. I mean, it just does not make sense. Why would God, in all of his, his power and his majesty and his absolute self, lay all of that aside and put himself into that weak, vulnerable position so that uh, something as fragile as words uh, would be his plan A without a plan B? Something as fragile as words. What do I mean by that? Uh, I mean, how many of us are, are married or have a job or have children or ourselves are a child or have lived in the world for more than 10 minutes and you realize that, I, that communicate, what? You don't understand what I'm saying? How come? Eh, you know, how fragile, how fragile are words now easily misconstrued. And so now let's go to the painting. Um, I thought I was going to do a lot more than I was today, but this is good enough. Um, here's this idea of preaching the, left, the works of God's left hand, of resolving to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Think about how God acts. All the way, I say this all the time, almost every single class. Um, you know, in the beginning, God. <laughs> and then there were, you get a description of what's around God. Everything was formless and void, chaos. Um, but the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the deep. It's a great, great sort of pregnant pause. And then God spoke. The fragility of the word where God speaks. And it comes all the way to John. In the beginning uh, was the word, and the word was God, and the word, thank you, was with God. Um, without whom nothing was made had been made. And so and the word became flesh and dwells among us. Oh, how fragile, how fragile the word. How fragile a newborn baby born to the backwater uh, of a nothing time and a nothing place. Left-handed works of God written all over the place. And now we fast forward to 2018. Even now, I mean, what's going on with you this week? Where's your mind been? Where's your heart been? What's, what's, uh, what's on your mind? Um, it could be good. I hope it is. I, mean, I hope there's a lot of good things. I hope we can take it on balance. We can say, well, there's a lot of, you know, it's, it's okay. You know, my family's well and love what I do. It's very satisfying. But truth be told, there's a lot that weighs me down. Um, I'm worried about X or this is, uh, this is a big deal um, and I'm really confused or I don't know what's going to happen to so-and-so um, or maybe it's like I know exactly what's going to happen to so-and-so. And they don't seem to see it, and I don't know how to do anything about it. I mean, what's what's on your mind this week? Um, uh, let these words sink into your ears. God saves only those who are lost. 
and God raises only those who are dead. And God redeems only those who are imprisoned. And God works in places where he seems absent. Um, and here's the painting where Luther has his left hand on the Bible. It could be anywhere. Um, uh, Luther would go so far as to say that Christ is hidden on every page of the scripture. It could be anywhere. And he could say, I can find Christ anywhere in the scripture. How, look at the swaddling cloths. He was talking about the, the Old Testament in particular because anywhere. Look at the, the fragile swaddling cloths in which the babe rests. He was talking in a very sort of tender way about his text, the text that had done so much to him, uh, the Old Testament, where God has uh, hidden himself until he says, you that have ears to hear or eyes to see, hear and see, where God, as it were, activates us. Again, that's what we call repentance. So it's like, behold, every time we hear that word, it's like, you know, I was a package and now I've been delivered and now my eyes are open and my ears are open. Uh, and now I didn't know, but now I do. I was blind, but now I see. I couldn't hear, but now I do. Behold, amen, verily, verily. These are all the words that the scripture uses. And that's what Luther has with his left hand. And then what's he doing with his right? Well, he's pointing. He's pointing to the left hand of God, to the work of God's left hand. Where the loincloth uh, blowing around, the idea there is it's right here, right now. This wasn't then. Um, uh, it was then, 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago for these people, 2,000 for us on a hill outside. But it's also right now, Christ Jesus and him crucified for you today, this day, uh, your Savior, your Redeemer, your, uh, uh, the one who speaks and, and repents you, uh, opens your ears and opens your eyes to see things as they are. Look at the space in between Luther and the people. It's a long way, isn't it? How fragile does the word, and then what materializes in between them, uh, but Christ. And let me see, I can't remember which ones I put beneath it. Um, but here's the interesting thing. Look where the stake comes down. I mean, it's all very, you see all the grid, that sort of fragile space, a lot of space in this painting. And you can remember it's underneath, and so... It's got all this and all this. It's not, it's not busy on the sides. And this comes down with all the order. You know, All the lines line up, and his finger comes right across, and this is Kranich himself, and it's all in this grid pattern. And you can even see more here. There's all sorts of axes that go on here. But where is that? It's not in the center. Why is that? What's he doing when he puts it not off-center? Because everything else is centered. There's all sorts of axes. It's not an accident. He didn't sort of paint that in and say, oops, I should have moved it over <laughs> three inches and three inches and put it there. It's that Christ Jesus and him crucified is spoken into your midst. They that would have the ears to hear and the eyes to see. Let them hear and behold Christ Jesus, the work of God's left hand for you. Not for them, not to change history, not to be the event that the church is going to sort of, you know, organize itself around so that we can have this great organization throughout history. No, it's Christ Jesus who died for you, for the thing which is on your mind and for the thing which is in your heart, that worry or that concern, the thing that needs saving or delivering, uh, that the, the, the simple word that I'm a sinner um, and that God rejoices over that. Um, 
how fragile is this? I mean, here's, I should have put that over. Here's, here's Luther with his pointing, could be anywhere. Um, uh, look at the people. I mean, not all are drawn to this word. Not everybody is is enraptured. Um, there's no halos, by the way. A little bit of sort of uh, art history. All the people are ordinary. They're just us. There's no sort of saint's halo around somebody. There's no sense of luminescence or transcendence where these people are somehow better than us. Uh, we don't know who most of these people are. The older man is probably Cranach, the painter himself, because he wanted to paint themselves in. Uh, the woman with the baby on her lap is probably Luther's wife and probably her dead, his dead daughter is to her left. We don't know. That could be his family. But look, there's the one girl who kind of breaking down the fourth wall, as it were. It's like, oh, you know, she's looking at us because we interrupted. Um, and the person right behind, just like in church this morning, if you had your kids, what were they doing? Everything else, you know, not paying attention. It's not for everyone. The fragility of the word in a particular time, at a particular place, of Christ coming for you. Christ speaking to you, saying, Your sins are forgiven. You are raised, though you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You are raised to life in Christ Jesus. You who were lost are now been brought near. You who cannot speak and cannot hear and cannot see, speak, hear, and see. Live my life. Um, and that's the word of God's left hand. Um, we beheld the majesty of God and we thought, aha, that's it. And he said, no, it's not. Um, and then their ears were closed and they couldn't understand because he spoke that Christ Jesus had to be delivered over to the hands of men. And we're going to keep playing that theme for the next couple of weeks. Um, the works of God's left hand. Um, thoughts? About the painting, uh, about people with art history majors, you might know more about it than I do. Yeah. I noticed the wall and the floor, like you said bridge, and it's good. That's good. Yeah, I like that, Claire. That's good. I hadn't thought about that. That's really good. Anyone else? I think it's almost the fact that we are presented with Jesus' right hand power, and we know that it's possible, makes his left hand power even more poignant. Because John the Baptist seems like it was all left hand, but because he, you didn't have the context of the right hand, that it just, it seems like your humble Christian. I don't know. Yeah. It seems like with Jesus, because oh. you're able to compress his right hand with his left hand, that it makes the left even more powerful. Mm -hmm. Amen. Mm -hmm. Well, let me say a prayer. Um, Lord, come to us. Uh, uh, let us behold your majesty, but come to us in, in meekness, Lord, and with the work of your left hand, uh, redeem us, and save us, and deliver us. And... Uh, uh, and rejoice, I dare pray. Um, rejoice over uh, a sinner of your redeeming um, and your saving work in each of our lives. Um, what's on our minds and in our hearts, meet us there, Lord. Um, perhaps even in spite of all that we could dare hope, um, be there for us and speak your living word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.
Thank you. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.